You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Bugs. Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and this is an Indie Talk week, one of my favorite weeks, favorite things to do, so that means I'm here with my good friend and co-founder of Bonsai Creative, Nicholas Bugs. Nick, say hello. What's up, folks? Um, you didn't get to hear it, but you know, Chris gave us a great countdown, and the last countdown he gave reminded both of us of a, of a wonderful song that I didn't get the love that it probably should have gotten. So I'm going to get down with that countdown real quick. Um, those who know it will love it. And it's a, it's a big shout out to, uh, to some folks that we would love to call friends. Uh, but I'm going to hit it real quick, Chris. I'm, I'm sorry. I just got to do it. I got to do the, uh, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Objection, <laughs> fellas. That's that, uh, ah, by Boys to Men. There were two tracks. There was, uh, ah, and there was, uh, ah, the sequel, if you didn't know. <laughs> I thought it was, so, ooh, ah. No, no, no. It was, uh, because it's you. Yeah, uh. H-H. There you go. It's uh, a little bit more mannish. Ah. Uh, a little bit of bravado, a little bit of machismo behind that. A little <laughs> power. Yeah. It's almost like the precursor to Master P. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, definitely precursor. Ah, yeah, I could just picture and like a, know, a monster saying that. That's right. And you know, Master P's got a um, a docu series out on BET right now. He's always so, working. He's always working. Yeah, man, always working. But yeah, anyway, every time you do the countdown, man, I, I think about that track. So if you haven't heard it, check it out on you know wherever you get your listens. It's a great track. Uh, and uh, the sequel by Boys to Men. I know Fiction. how it phonetically should be said. I'm still going to say ooh-ah because I'm uncomfortable no. saying uh-ah. No, but you you're right. It's, uh. a, it's, a, it's a great track. <laughs> and thank you for that rendition. That was delicious. It's been sampled uh, by Beyonce and someone else. Uh, I think it was sampled by Joe. So Joe Thomas, uh, the, the R&B singer. Uh, wow. I think it just goes by Joe. But uh, you can also check it there. So they, it has a lot of uh, recent love as well. Uh, I wanted to start our conversation, Nick, with a question. And it might seem obvious to you, but you'll see where I'm going with it. When you take a flight and you get on a plane, there's a social contract that happens. And you never have to talk about the social contract. But it's there and you know it's there. At least you're assuming it's there. It's a social contract between you, every other passenger, and the pilot. And the contract is that the pilot wants to land at the same destination in which you would like to land. Okay? Okay. If you yeah, find out, yes, if you find out that your pilot doesn't want to land where you want to land, that's your cue to get off the plane. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I laugh because I guess it all depends on at which time you find this out. If I find this out <laughs> mid-flight, <laughs> I have no cue to get off the plane. I'm just going to end up where the pilot ends up. <laughs> right, in the side of a German mountain. Right. <laughs> so, so we talk about this really simple concept, and it exists all across the country and all across the world. There are these social contracts, unspoken social contracts that we all abide by that makes society function. And every once in a while, people break the social contract and it's a dangerous proposition. Sometimes they break the social contract for good. Sometimes they break it for bad, but when it's broken, it's noticed, right? 
You can think okay. of a lot of these social contracts that we all have with one another, uh, you know, really simple things like, you know, you don't, you know, touch me in public. I'm not going to touch you in public sort of thing. Right. Yeah. I don't have to talk to a stranger about that. That's just common courtesy. And so we get trained this way, Nick, from birth, right? This isn't something that we're born with. We are born into whatever culture, society we are born into, and then we follow that along and understand it and then act accordingly. But film is different in the way it works, especially in indie film. And we take this conditioning we've had from birth and then we apply it to our jobs and the things we do. And so as a filmmaker, it might be the most natural, organic, simple understanding that the destination you have and want to have as a filmmaker is the same destination that your buyer or distributor or both would want to have. And that's why it's so disheartening when filmmakers find out that that's not the case, Nick. It's kind of hard. You know, I, I get, I see where you're coming from. And I wonder, you know, what actually creates this notion of a social contract when it comes to indie filmmakers. Because in our experience and dealing with the filmmakers that we've dealt with and the distributors that we've dealt with, there's, there is this idea that this social construct exists but the real question is, is why, like who told you it was going to be that way? Mm -hmm. You know, cause, cause again, the things that you, you kind of walk into, whether it's at birth or through training or whatever, someone had to explain it to you, you know, or you had to experience it several times. Again, you just, your flight analogy, right? Um, you know, why do I believe this is because every time I've got on a flight, that's been the case, right? So for indie filmmakers, I think, you know, you know, where you're going with this is, that distribution uh, process and, you know, what distributors destination is versus the destination of the filmmaker. And, you know, filmmakers haven't been through this necessarily, you know, 10, 20 times to decide that, yeah, this is the construct that my distributor and I have the same destination. You know, they didn't, like, where are they getting this expectation from? Because, in what we've experienced, no, the, the destinations are not the same. You know, there is a desire on the filmmaker's part to exploit their film, to do certain things, uh, to become certain people out of, you know, out of it. Um, but the distributor is running their own business, you know, that looks at the filmmaker not as a unique individual product that needs to be represented in a unique individual way, but as part of a portfolio that supports their business. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge for me. It's like, um, and it, well, that's necessarily the challenge for me. I guess it's the challenge for filmmakers to say, where did you get this construct? <laughs> you know, I, I think you? it, I think it comes <laughs> from the, the natural world, the natural sort of organic news cycle that we live in today. The, and the Google, uh, vacation, if that's a word I could create, yeah. of, of information. Because what we do today as a culture is we look at the outcome of things. So we don't go deeper, right? You know, Google is probably this, this thing, you know, Google took off, I would say, because there is a hunger for information. But the one thing Google doesn't do and doesn't or doesn't do well is tell you what you should Google. <laughs> and so you really don't know what you don't know. And consequently you end up searching for, uh, models, uh, who died yesterday. Uh, this rap star's middle name, you know, your favorite filmmakers, hobbies, and just, and, and then when you are actually searching for relevant information, it's usually, it's usually to support some bias you have. Right. So, okay, I want to prove that I was right about this position or I'm in some discussion with my dad or mom on Facebook <laughs> and, I want to, <laughs> and I want to slam them with some information I pull from Google that shows that they're dead wrong about their position in politics or, or whatever else it could be. And that's how we use Google. And, and so the information becomes very limited, right? Like you're really just taking 
the, the, the rote memorization of a fact and then applying it instead of thinking deeply about how did this come to be. So when I look at film, I say, okay, you're seeing that this film made this much in the box office. So you went to box office mojo. You're like, wow, this movie made this much money. It looks like the studio and the filmmakers were aligned. They wanted to go the same place. They went the same place. And that's awesome. I want to be in that business without factoring in the 50% that went to the big box theater, the 25 to 35% that went to the PNA, the, uh, you know, in film, every single contract is unique. So did the star create a unique contract that hurt the waterfall for the producers and the other actors in it? Uh, what does that split look like? What's the split with the studio once that happens? And then what money is left over? What is the ongoing taxes and accounting? And so we yeah. look at the outcome and we say, they're aligned. Right. And then you get the details and you hear the horror stories. You're just like, oh, I thought they were aligned. Well, <laughs> no, they're not aligned because there's different business models at play. And what filmmakers do sometimes, they say, well, they're sharky. They're a shark. That's corrupt. Well... Not really, because that distributor or that buyer is looking at their business model and they need to be true to it. And you're looking at your business model as a creative and saying, I need to be true to it. And those things don't go together. Yeah. And, and I would also offer that um, you're looking at the as an indie. Sometimes you're looking at the wrong thing. Um, you know, you and I often talk about, you know, markets. And, you know, marketing to the right markets, you know, determining which market you should be in. Um, and when you look at one of these films, like you mentioned, Box Office Mojo. Well, how many indie films even make it to the box office? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So it's like when independent filmmakers look at these success stories, they're not even looking at their market. Right. So the premise is wrong to begin with. Right. So even though all the things that you just mentioned, Chris, are, are absolutely correct, like all those splits that have to be taken, the deals, the contracts that have to be put in consideration, that's all studio. Mm-hmm. Right. That's all, you know, mega dominant media. And that's not indie. Right. So I think that that's the challenge again with independent film is that, you know, for independent filmmakers, you have to realize that your market is not the Hollywood market. Your benchmark is not the Hollywood benchmark. Yes. You know, you really need to look at what's happening in your market, what's happening in independent film. You know, which who are the distributors who are distributing your type of content, which distributors are distributing your type of content to your type of audience? You know, and I think that that's the that's where people get caught up. And then you mentioned uh, Netflix, you know, at the beginning of this conversation and the fact that, you know, they were taking over Hollywood and, you know, they were making their own stuff. Well, what does making their own stuff mean? It means that they don't need the independent content that they may have needed several years ago. So, again, when independent filmmakers are looking at, yeah, I want my stuff picked up by Netflix, it's not impossible to make that happen. But is it probable in this current state, you know, and then, and what are you doing to, you know, when's the last time, you know, I always ask this question. It's like for all of our filmmakers and even our friends, it's like, when's the last time you watched an independent film? You know, people Mm -hmm. always want to talk about the latest Netflix film, the latest film that may or may not be coming to the theater, the things that are getting pushed out because of COVID and all this stuff. And it's like, well, what is the last independent film that you watched? And did you, let's say you liked it, did you try to emulate its path in some fashion? Did you even look at its path Mm -hmm. in any fashion to determine how it got to where it was? Was it successful? You know, you actually have, in the independent market, uh, independent filmmakers um, have a much greater opportunity to reach out to other independent filmmakers to find out about their journey. Right. So if if you saw an independent film that you liked, there's a very good chance you could reach out to those filmmakers and ask them directly, how is it going? Right. right Are you right. being successful? You know, like having a legitimate conversation within your market as opposed to looking to markets that just are not yours. Right. It, it's it's so true. And and talking about streaming, right? Which is 
more aligned with independent film. Although some independent films get a little bit of a, a run, like Don't Think Twice, the Mike Birbiglia film, which I know you would argue is not a true indie, <laughs> but because he's Mike Birbiglia and he right. had Keegan-Michael Key in it, and you know, there's, there's star power there, you know, A-list star power. But yeah. it, it did have a small theatrical run. And I look at how it, important it is to sort of know at the pre-production level what your plan is because the the playing field is not even at all. So if you had 20,000 people at $15 a ticket on average, let's say across the nation, go watch your film globally, let's say not even the nation, globally, 20,000, only 20,000 people saw your movie globally. Let's say a global distribution at $15 a ticket. That'd be $300,000. And then, of course, you'd be subject to all the splits I talked about a moment ago, but it'd be $300,000, and you'd generally be disappointed in that, right? We were around the globe. There's 7.5 to 7.8 billion people in the globe, and only 20,000 people watched it. However, if that same 20,000 people were to watch it on Amazon Prime in, uh, let's say, your general services deal that a lot of indie distributors do, which is basically an aggregation deal where they contract with a BitMax and then BitMax pushes your content out onto all the streamers that are out there that they have a deal with, right? In that kind of deal, and 20,000 people watched your movie on Amazon, that would equal $1,200 which would still be structured with the splits that we talked about earlier. So real quick, before you get on, let's, let's get back to the, the, the numbers here, right? So you said theatrical at $15 mm-hmm. brings you 300,000 mm-hmm. versus streaming bring on Amazon prime video is 1200. So 300,000 versus 1200. It's astonishing. I mean, the, the the gap, the chasm is, I've always said this, is, is class action lawsuit worthy. Uh, I, I, I don't understand. You have to understand that that the way I look at it actually angers me to, to even talk about it sometimes. But it's, you're talking about the same 20,000 eyes. Yeah. So, so the consumer hasn't changed. It, it'd be like, It'd be like a candy bar, you know, it's kind of what they do to you in high school. They know you're trapped, so they charge you two fifty for a 12-ounce <laughs> coat. And that's right. And then you yeah. go back out into the world and it's 50 cents. Um, it could You could look at it that way, but I, I really believe that it's not even like that because we know that the Coke, no matter what it's sold for, costs about two cents a can to make. And so the film business is the only business I know of where the product costs more than what the market is willing to pay for it in most cases. So it's a very tricky business. And that's why I say you have to start in pre-production with a plan that actually works to figure out, you know, how are we going to make this work? What distributors are we targeting you know, are we willing to take a services deal at any point, no matter what happens? Let's say no one wants to buy it. You know, you look at what Tenet did just to sort of, I know I'm jumping the pond here a little bit, but Tenet cost $200 million. Okay. So this is the, the Christopher Nolan film with John David Washington in it. They said, no, we're not going to let this come out on iTunes. We have to make a billion dollars off this movie for it to make sense. So we are going to deploy patience. We're going to let this come out next summer and we're going to redo all the junket. Like they're going to redo the junket as if they never went out and did these interviews, never went out and promoted the movie. Like they never did any promotion. They're just going to redo the entire junket. They're going to come out in the summer because they have to make a billion dollars to make this movie work. But as an independent filmmaker, we get desperate and we say, well, nobody likes our movie. We better sell it to the person that likes it. Or the, or the company that likes it, rather. No. If that's a bad deal, it's a bad deal. Like, the truth is persistent, right? It doesn't change because of your situation. A bad deal is a bad deal is a bad deal, whether you're broke, 
desperate or or livid in the green. Right, Nick? Yeah, and I would, I would offer something else, you know, having this conversation and, and thinking back to, you know, so many conversations that we've had with independent filmmakers, you know, you start to look at this and say, you know, what what is the basis of indie film success? And I'm not talking about unicorns, right? Because I think that's where people will, will want to look to, to these, you know, one in a million or, or like one in a decade type films and like, well, that indie film made it, but come on. Right. Let's not let's not play that game. Right. Where it's that, again, it's a unicorn film that you're comparing yourself to or you believe that you can be It's once in a decade. And once it once it happens, it's done, which is why it's once in a decade. Right. right? You can't, you can't cash second. someone's lottery ticket. Exactly. You're not going to be the second. Ticket. Right. You're not going to be the second. So, you know, things that are successful, not necessarily wildly successful like a unicorn, but like successful independent films. And it starts to make me make me think about like, okay, what is successful independent filmmaking really truly based on? And there's a couple of layers here, but one of the one of them is branding and marketing. Mm-hmm. And you know, we talk about you know four walling films, right? Like going across the country, four walling your film, getting people to watch it, moving on to the next city you know, getting people to watch it. And it's great, right? You, you pay, let's say you pay $2,500 to $3,500 to four wall. And then let's say you make ten dollars to $15,000 of people seeing your film. That's awesome, right? You're making a profit and, and a relatively significant one when you look at a percentage. But that takes work, right? There's a significant level of effort devoted to a single film, Right. Yeah, you are literally devoting your life, your time, your expenses, everything to a single film to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And it's a level of devotion. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll use that, that analogy, but basically it's a level of devotion to your baby that many independent filmmakers are unwilling to give. You know, where they're just saying, you know, for so again, when I look at some of the more successful ones, it's because they were willing to give that devotion. They lived with that baby, right? They didn't let it go. They marketed, they branded, they traveled the, the country. You know, they got DVDs and sold them out of their cars. They four-walled, which means that they had to put money up front in order to make money out. Whereas a lot of filmmakers don't want to do that. They just want to put them out with these distributors to, and aggregators and get their films out there in hope of a payday. But no, it's not going to happen. Right. The independent film market is really about the passion, the love, the dedication that you're willing to put into a single film to help it make a profit. Now, the other side of that is, you know, your film, of course, has to be good. Right. So even if you put it in you four wallet, if your film is not good, it's not going to make your money back. Uh, But that comes to another layer of this onion, which is making sure that you're speaking to an audience uh, that really wants or desires or needs this content. So if you marry, you know, this level of devotion to a single film, like you're willing to ride for it across the country, you're willing to put marketing dollars behind it, you're willing to do what it takes to make it successful, and you're speaking to an audience that needs the content, well, that's the space that independent filmmakers need to be in. And I think that that's something that widely across the industry they've lost sight of because they believe that that um, that North Star is something in Hollywood mm-hmm. and that Hollywood film isn't in their market. And that's the unfortunate part. Yeah, it really is. And it's 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 this thing where it's an alchemy. It really is an alchemy. So you start in pre-production. And you figure out who's the audience for this essential content. Essential, like it's essential, right? They need they need this. It doesn't exist, or I have a way to tell it in which is so unique that only I could tell it. So who's that audience? And then you're figuring out, okay, so based on that audience, what kind of brand do we need to have? What do we? What are the keywords? What do we need to speak about? What is the look of not just the movie, but the look of myself and the artists involved our pages on social what does that all need to look like the 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 marketing materials right and then you figure out 
what's the frequency, what's the timing, and what are the resources, the avenues we use to push this out? Do we get a PR firm? Should I get a manager to do some of this? Should I hire a social media marketing firm? Who's going to do my brand strategy for me? Those kind of things come into play and should come into play in pre-production. Then you start principal shooting, principal photography, and, and you're hoping to do a great job, right? After you've decided that you've got a great cast and the cast matches the audience and all that good stuff. And you go into post and you're, you're getting ready to go. And at that point, you have to sort of match. I think if you get to that point, you've done the things I said before, Nick. It's like you've given yourself options. Because now you can take a path of self-distribution or you could try to sell it after doing well at a great festival like Cannes or Toronto or Sundance or something like that, or South by Southwest, right? If you do great at one of these festivals, then you might get a buyer buyer from a studio. A24 might roll in and buy it and distribute it for you and you've done great. If that doesn't happen, you still have the power of knowing that you're well positioned from a brand perspective. Now, here's what's interesting. If you do all those things correctly and you have that alchemy, it feels like more times than not than the movie actually does get picked up by somebody. And to me, that's the modern approach right now for indie film because, and you mentioned, you, you touched on this earlier about Netflix and that shift they made between 2013 and 2016. And uh, most people don't think about it this way, but they really ran Hollywood even then, back in 2011, 2012, 2013. It was such a foregone conclusion that that was a, a 10x improvement over the current market that they put Blockbuster and Hollywood video and everyone they were up against out of business, right? That's a key marker of knowing that you've 10x to a market and oh, and that and that market's offering is that the, that that the competitors actually go out of business right you look at the iPhone and Blackberry and that's a great example and you say well iPhone didn't put Samsung out of business well Samsung makes chips they make you know computer chips they make refrigerators they make everything so you can't put them out of business with a phone right but those <laughs> those who were just doing a phone they went out palm went out those organizations went out and so Netflix did that to the movie business and they had a change in philosophy because up to 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, they were purchasing and licensing independent films because they needed the content. Then they decided it's better just to own this. Even if it costs us more, we'll get more viewerships with higher quality content. So let's just start making our own stuff. And that boxed out the independent filmmaker from going this route of getting a distributor and having that distributor sell into Netflix. Right. And, and I think, you know, let's just get back to some first principles type, type stuff based off of the lessons learned from what's happened over this past several years, what's happened uh, to us in our process, you know, kind of learning and doing. Uh, I just want to say to independent filmmakers, expect that you are responsible for your baby. Right. Like, don't expect anyone else to do it for you. Okay. Mm -hmm. If it happens, right. So there's, you know, there are things that happen. You talk about this alchemy, but there's, there's luck, timing, you know, things that happen, you know, we can serendipity, like all these things dip in and can offer any one filmmaker a great opportunity that they never could have imagined. It's all possible, but what's highly probable Right, the thing that's going to be this most likely case in independent film, right? So let's say the 99.9% of filmmakers, if you operate based on the notion that you have to do it all, then you increase the probability of success mm -hmm. because you understand that that one film that you do, if you really believe that that one film is the next thing for you, is the, is the next big step but you're willing to put the marketing money, the marketing time, you know, you're willing to get this thing out there to the audience. You're willing to bring an audience along. If you believe, I won't even say believe, if you understand that you are responsible for that day one, that gets back to your pre-production discussion, right? You understand that you're responsible 
then you need to make sure that you put budget line items for branding, for marketing, for, you know, even for distribution. You know, if you need to get, sell DVDs in your local community or Blu-rays or whatever, if you know that you're responsible for that merchandising, Right. If you understand that you're responsible for the financial success of your film and not a distributor, then you are putting yourself at a significant advantage against most of the folks that we're actually speaking to or we've heard from over the past, I don't know, three, four, five years. So that's that's what it is to me. Take responsibility for this. Don't yeah. put it on someone else because they're not They're Back to you again, what you said, Chris, their destination is not your destination. So. Be ready for it. Do the work. Uh, if you need help, ask, call, you know, hire a consultant, you know, do whatever you need to do. But understand that you are responsible for your success. No one else is. Right. And it's funny because you'll meet all kinds of creatives doing this work, which is one of the most fun parts about it, frankly. And you would meet, let's say you, I know I have a few times. I don't know about you, Nick, but I've had people that are would be authors. Right. And you say, okay. Well, as an independent writer, you don't have an agent. First thing you need to do is get an agent so that you can get your book pitched in front of publishing houses. But if you don't do that and you walk it in yourself, which is totally possible, you have to be willing to commit to going on a road show (laughs) and promoting your book. And everybody says, oh, I I totally would do that. I totally would do that. But when it comes right down to it, so often in film, that's not the case. Yep. So at the at the time that that you're putting money down or you're putting time to make sure you're doing this thing or the festival run happens, yeah, you you'll go around and go to the festivals. That's the fun part. But when it comes down to actually having to like go from theater to theater to four wall or to go city to city to do pop-up tables and sell DVDs, or get people to get involved in your movie or put flyers from coffee shop to coffee shop um, with QR codes on the flyer. Let's say, for example, just throwing things out there, but that's when it's like, well, well, shouldn't the distributor do that? (laughs) (laughs) Or like, like, why am I doing that? Or, or that's not going to have a big enough impact. Well, some impact is good and it's really great for everyone around you to see that energy, right? If one person is displaying an energy level that is greater than the rest of the team, then everyone follows suit to that person that's putting off the most energy. Uh, When I played basketball, the coach would always tell me on a fast break, you pass to the person that's running the hardest. Right. So to the victor go to spoils kind of thing. Right. So as a director and as a producer, when you own a movie and you're, and you're advocating and, and you're the speaker for that film, you have to have the energy to do the hard, sucky stuff too that puts you out there and potentially embarrasses you and potentially is below you, et cetera. Uh, you, you have to do it to make it work. And to go back to the first principles around branding and marketing and have it in your budget, when you make that plan and, and execute on it, I, I honestly haven't seen a film that did that that didn't have the outcome they wanted. That's what's crazy about it. It's like batting a thousand once you get the mixture right. It really is. I'm trying to, I'm really racking my brain to think of a film that positioned themselves that way and didn't get picked up and wasn't profitable. Yeah. And I just, I just want to, again, we're, we're talking a lot of first principle stuff here. And I think one of those is like, when we talk about this passion for branding, marketing, you know, guerrilla marketing, getting out there in the streets, you know, um, not, you know, letting someone else babysit your baby. Um, I just want to come back to another one of these first principles. And it gets into like, like what makes a filmmaker do all of those things? Like what makes a filmmaker want to take a film on a road show across the country? What makes a filmmaker want to create these flyers and put them in every restaurant, every business, you know, every cafe in their city, their county, their state? Like what makes a person want to do these things and invest the time, the energy, the money in doing this? And I just bring that back to the story itself. And what it comes down to is there's a difference between a story that you can tell and, the, and a story that must be told. Those filmmakers who put in that time and energy, 
they do that because their story must be told. There's something there mm-hmm. that has to speak for not only them, but for them as part of a community of others, right? They want to, like, it has to be told. Like, this story needs to get out because there's a community behind this that has otherwise been, you know, marginalized. They've otherwise not had their stories out there. Like, that's that desire, that's that passion behind it. And I think with other filmmakers or some filmmakers, they honestly are creating films, they're writing stories that they might find interesting, right? They were able to do a couple cool creative things in there, but they're not even passionate about the content. Right. Right. They're happy, right, to have been able to put something like this together. They're proud of having put it together. But if that story never got told, would it matter, right, to an audience, to a market, to a community? And I think that's, you know, one of the things we've learned from some of our filmmakers, our filmmaking friends who've been successful in this is that, yeah, if you're not somehow living that story, you're right, if you can't somehow attach yourself to a community that needs that story to be told, it becomes much more difficult to get out there and and do this impassioned marketing and branding and selling and all of this because you don't belong to the story, right? And the story doesn't necessarily belong to you. It's just a thing that you did. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it is for the for filmmakers. It's like really look at the stories that you're trying to tell. And it's not just about your creativity and the things that you can do. Look at your next story that you're going to write or the next thing that you're going to bring to the screen and say, why does this story have to be told? And that will be the thing that gives you the energy, the spirit, the drive to do all that you need to do in order to take ownership of its future. Right. It's like if you've ever been to a job board, anyone in the audience listening and, and you, Nick, if you've ever been to a job board and you look at a job and you're like, oh, I like that. That sounds good. I'll, let me click on that. You click on the job and it's got a, this bulleted out list of job descriptions and job qualifications, right? And you talked about this earlier, Nick, about the difference between a studio film and independent life and a a Hollywood director and an independent director and and same with producing side, et cetera. The job description on the indie side we think is the same as the one on the Hollywood side. (laughs) And if you went to those two job postings, Hollywood director, Hollywood producer, you know, indie director, indie producer, and even writer, those job descriptions are vastly different. And the, the, and so what gets left off of the of the the job description that indie filmmakers think they're taking on is that that hustle uh, moment that you just talked about um, a moment ago. Like like that wasn't in the job description. Wait a second, I have to go out and hustle for this movie. I have to go out and do all this stuff. Are you crazy? Like this wasn't part of the <laughs> the job description to do this work. Uh, whereas the Hollywood director doesn't have to do that because the curation process is so, so much (laughs) heavier. The, the, the funneling out of your story, the, the, the perfection your script has to have, the, the, the people that will get brought in and paid generously to ensure that this story is going to hit. You can't, you wouldn't believe it. You know, you're talking about people getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a week for a four week period just to come in and fix your story. Right. And that's after it's curated and understood that there's an audience there. It's made the blacklist. Let's say, for example, the, the, the agencies have already packaged people around the story. So there's a lot on the line. And that curation is something you think a consult with us and that feedback is hard. Wait till you get in that job description. Right. <laughs> Then, right. then you really feel that pressure. So, of course, that job's harder on the front end, so they don't have you go out and hustle the film across the country. That's what somebody else does. And, frankly, it's just too big for, to allow one person to hustle it around the country. But an independent film, that's totally, it's totally different. And that's why um, you know, some of this conversation lends to, okay, what is the modern approach to sell a film? Right. So if Netflix is making their own stuff, and you can't have a distributor sell into it anymore, right? Because one of the questions we get all the time, at least I get all the time, is, hey, it's interesting. Like, your film, All Light Will End, is on Netflix, but, you're, but 
another version of you and adult interference aren't. That's weird. Yeah, that's a timing thing. That's not, that's not, a, that's not a, a decision based on the merit of each individual film. That's simply just how the market shifted and, and the timing in which those films came out. It makes all the difference. And the, and the gap between that is like a, a, a handful of months. That's how quick the market had changed on, on, on those titles, right? And so now you can maybe skip that distributor part and package something together and then take it right to a Netflix or take it right to an Amazon or Hulu or Peacock or HBO Max or whatever and have them pay to develop and produce the film after they've optioned it from you. So it's like, it's not, it's an old way made new again for the independent market. Yeah. And it's, uh, but you know, some of those things that you just talked about are, are tough, you know, like you talk, talk about the packaging and, and taking it, you know, into the door. Um, and it's, it's tough for the independent filmmaker to do some of those things. And it does require what we talked about, you know, a couple minutes ago about first principles about what this story is about, you know, uh, niche is still where it is for independent film. Um, but not just niche, uh, in the marketplace, but a very specific identifiable market that hasn't been served, right? Like it's that type of thing that independent filmmakers need to really understand and prove not only to themselves, but to the market that they have something unique, you know, so, um, and, and unique beyond their unique touch or the unique voice, mm -hmm. right? It's really about unique as then this community, not just you, but this community has a voice that has been unheard and I as a filmmaker am speaking on their behalf. That's compelling. Yes. Right. Not that you have the next sci-fi film that has a unique twist at the end. Right. That, you know, sci-fi has been done, you know, everybody's got a unique twist. Like, well, come on now. What are you, what are you offering that is compelling? And I think that's what folks, and I think, you know, if we were to offer some advice, um, from our perspective, and I would say from the perspective of some of the filmmakers who've made it, like, how do you come up with that topic? And it's like, well, what do you know? Right. You know, what community are you a part of? What have you lived? Right. And how are you bringing that experience and sometimes that pain, you know, to the film? And I think that, you know, when filmmakers start looking at that and not just at markets, you know, I'm going to make a horror film. Okay. Yeah. There's lots of horror films and lots of them that don't do well at all. It's, it's, an, <laughs> right? it's, a, it's an onslaught, Nick. There, there are <laughs> right. so many horror films made by indie filmmakers because they look at it as a realm in which a home run can be hit and you can have a unicorn and they, you know, horror is unique because it has a built in fan base. That's, that's rabid and, and insatiable. But the goal has always been to like, well, let me make the next Blair Witch or let me make the next The Ring or whatever it is, instead of looking at what the market is doing. And if you look at the market around horror today, what they're doing is they are making IP, intellectual property. So Invisible Man, Hansel and Gretel, whatever it is. So my advice to independent filmmaker right now or indie filmmakers in general, if you want to make a horror film, go read a bunch of books. Go read a bunch of Hans Christian Andersen stuff and try to adapt a story that's that you know is successful because it's old as time and make it into your own film and your own take on that IP. I think that's a great way forward for independent filmmakers. And it is a limitless amount of information stories out there that you could that you could pull upon. And that's the really good news is there's just no way to exhaust you know, eons and millennia of stories that are quite terrifying if you really dig into them and, and, and have your own twist on it. Yeah. Well, I would also offer that, um, you know, horror is also taking on a new face, which is, um, you know, telling potentially socially conscious or socially relevant stories, um, via the horror medium. Right. So it's the same deal. Like, what if you took your personal experiences, your personal pain, the community's experiences, the community's pain, and spoke of that with the medium of horror, mm -hmm. right? 
So again, you're speaking for a community, but you're doing that in a fashion that leverages a genre of, you know, like you said, of a hunger that's insatiable, right? That's the tie. It's not just another horror film. It's not just another, you know, frat house, sorority house thing, you know, where, you know, a bunch of naked girls are running through and, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, jack dudes are, you know, trying to avoid the killer. It's been, it's played. But if you can speak for an audience while also leveraging a genre that is highly popular, then you have a win. So again, if you're really the, the passion to do all the things that are necessary to do in absence of a distributor doing those things for you comes from speaking from the voice of your personal experiences and the, and the voice of a community. And if you can do that, then you'll want that story to come out like it, like it has to. And that's what's going to drive you to the next level. And, I, and for me, when you talk about the modern approach to selling a film, then it's even the modern approach to making a film. And that's it, you know, is that it cannot be cookie cutter. It can't be just genre based. What it comes down to is social consciousness, community consciousness that spills through in the art of filmmaking. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, it's such a, fun conversation to have such an important essential conversation to have i've had a blast doing that with you the whole thing is making me think about too and i guess it wouldn't be a conversation in 2020 if we didn't have some angle that dealt with COVID 19 and what that's really doing to the industry and how the timing's all off and is it real is it not real in terms of the necessity to you know, closed theaters. And even if theaters were open, would, would studios release their films and take the risk for, you know, that those films tank because you have limited seating in those theaters. And for the independent side, though, you, you wonder, okay, well, if I can't go around and be that hustler that four walls my film because those theaters are closed, you know, is there still a viable self-distribution option? Um, and maybe this is something we cover on our next indie talk in, in at length. But that that is a question that sort of came up in my head as I'm listening to this conversation. I'm like, okay, well, you f- you you follow these steps. Uh, if you don't sell into uh, Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, Peacock, et cetera, you just name down the list. I mean, there's 275 streamers right now, just about. So if you can't sell into them, and you can't go to a festival and get an A24 or an orchard well orchard isn't around anymore but you get the you get my point you know get a studio to buy your film get hbo to buy it or whatever uh where can you go with it you know how can you self-distribute successfully uh i don't don't know i i have i have some thoughts about it but it's i'm not sure i've thought them out enough yeah i'm with you man because i've got the same things and you know when we look at the films that we have you know, out there in distribution right now. And, and again, you know, times are shifting and they're changing and the timings of certain things are, are working in our favor. The timings of other things are not, you know, we have to continue to look at, you know, what are our options for the exploitation of our films? And I think that would be a great topic for our next discussion is to say, you know, if, if we had to do it now, right, if you're putting a film in the market now, what are the best options for distribution? Is it self-distribution? Is it distrib- you know distributing with a uh, a known distributor? You know what are these options, and and how does the independent filmmaker come out on top in all this? You know we've we've got a, a couple of ideas. Even of course before you get to the distribution phase and how you need to be considering this. But yeah, that's a the whole topic for another discussion that I think we we definitely should have because I think you know for us from a lessons learned standpoint we owe it you know, to our, our filmmaking community to have this conversation because we want them to be successful. Right. And, and to be clear, you know, the issue sounds straightforward. Okay. I'll just take my film directly to Bitmax or to gum road or something like that. And then I'll put it out there on all the streaming sites and then I'll do my best to promote it on social and people will watch it. That's half the equation. The other half is, is how do you get fair market value for your, for your film? If you can't charge $15 a ticket in a theater, that's right. Right. So you have to think about, okay, where do I get fair market value for my film? Like Blu-rays are still there, but they are rapidly declining and you're starting to see homes that don't even have a Blu-ray player. So that was a place where the shame of that is, is that was a place where you could get fair market value for your film. So now we have to think, where are the other places in which I can do this? So I have a couple of ideas. We'll share it in another conversation, but uh, 
in terms of this conversation, I really enjoyed it. I loved it. I hope everyone out there uh, listening found some value in it and enjoyed it as well. We're going to keep this thing trucking. Lots of fun things around the corner uh, with the podcast. A lot of um, uh, new series we have coming out, Mistakes in the Making, Nick, has been a runaway success. And so I want to say to anyone out there that's in the filmmaking community that has a mistake that turned out to be something that made them smarter, made them a better filmmaker, or was actually the catalyst to their next great success, please reach out to us at contact at bonsai.film and we'll take it from there. We'll start a correspondence. You can also reach out to us on social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter at underscore bonsai creative. So you can leave a comment on one of our posts or DM us either way. We'll get right back to you. We are also on Facebook. So you can search for us by just searching for Bonsai Creative and we'll, we'll come right up on Facebook. Uh, if you have questions, comments, uh, things you want to suggest, you can take the email I said earlier, contact at bonsai.film. Email us those thoughts, those comments, and we would really appreciate it. We love uh, your engagement. We have another series that will roll out on Sunday called Film, the film investment series. These are just short little blurbs uh, based on a conversation I had with another creative in town. I think uh, they provide these small little bites of value and information. And I think from me and Nick's perspective, it's like, okay, this is good because it's a reminder of something you probably already know, but to hear it in these small little chunks and hear it sort of on your day off on a Sunday where it can sort of sit on you for a little bit, I think is, is a, is a positive thing to do and, and should be great. So, and then of course, next week we'll have our standard interview with the uh, creative in the community. Nick, do you have any parting words for this audience? Well, man, I've got, uh, you know, one thing to say, and that is be better, be creative and be engaged. Well, that is the perfect six words to say. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, I always love that. That is the bonsai way, the bonsai credo. I hope everyone out there stays safe, stays healthy and lives that uh, credo to the fullest. So Nick, I'll talk to you next time. Yeah, for sure, man. This was great. All right. Take care. All right, man. You too. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Banzai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.